Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Uh, We made it. We made it through another one. We did. Uh, We're at the end of 2021. This is going to be our sort of wrap up, look back at the the year in the law show. Yes. um, And I think uh, I've seen a couple of people talk about this, um, both like sort of within my friend groups and kind of online, depending on where you work and like what and what you do, like the bounds of like, hey, we're we're looking ahead to next year already are kind of like, you know, in flux a little bit. You know, we're we're running this at the end of, I don't know, the second to or a third to last full week of December. And it's like, I feel good kind of just calling it now in terms of news. I, I feel great about that. In fact, I am very hopeful nothing big happens beyond this record date. Um, but I think even if it does, what we're looking to do here is kind of look at the bigger picture, the bigger yes. trends. So that's what we have in store for everybody. Um, I wanted to start with uh, basically the same thing we talked about at the end of 2020. Um, <laughs> yeah, we we took a deep dive in that show about how COVID rippled through the legal world. We talked about, you know, the cases the pandemic spawned, particularly for the insurance industry, the impact on lawyers who were kept out of court during a bunch of lockdowns, and also the mess that resulted for a lot of people that were taking the bar exam. That yes. all happened last year. Um we're closing in on the end of this year and um, second year of the pandemic, and it's still the biggest story. It's still rippling its way through. Yes, we were we were hoping not to repeat ourselves too much, but I mean, twenty twenty one was kind of like a weird. It's like one of those years that like is somewhat transitional, and that we're dealing with sort of the long tail of a couple of really generational events that happened the prior year. Um, that is true of both COVID, which we'll talk about now, and some other stuff that we'll talk about later in the show. But um, we wanted to center the COVID, COVID year two discussion um, on something a little bit more specific. And what are we talking about here, Amber? Vaccines. I think that has been... Yeah. Um, I uh, Didn't I get named word of the year this year, I think? Um, Sounds and- right. It's no no different for us in the legal world either because the vaccines had a lot of effect in the industry and in court cases that sprung up about them. So I yes. wanted to talk about sort of some big buckets, um, the lawsuits workers have been filing, the way courts and law firms themselves have dealt with vaccines. And then mm-hmm. the biggest one, I think, is President Biden's wide vaccine mandate that's resulted in a ton of legal challenges. Okay. Um uh, yeah, obviously, this is a um, this is really even even beyond the importance of addressing the pandemic. This was like a legitimate sort of scientific breakthrough that you sort of made it to market in record time um, and is in the process of changing how we're moving through this world. Um, but it did have some really uh, very immediate and potent uh, legal uh, ramifications. So where do you want to start here? Let's start with a bucket about worker suits. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of talk about two um, ways this manifested. One, not really about vaccines, and the other's all about vaccines. So if last year was the year for a bunch of lawsuits against insurers trying to get coverage for your COVID losses, this year was really marked by the number of workers who came out and sued their employers for various pandemic-related reasons. The Mm -hmm. first sort of bucket of these um, was... Workers who allege they weren't paid properly for having to do extra things during the pandemic they wouldn't normally have to do. 
So a prominent mm-hmm. example of this was a lawsuit filed in February against Walmart. Uh, a proposed class said the retail giant didn't pay them for time they spent on mandatory pre-shift COVID screening. So they had to like get their temperature taken. They had to answer questions about how they were feeling. And all of that took mm-hmm. um, time as they started their work days. So yeah. that's one kind of suit where I use the Walmart one just as an example because we've seen a lot of those this year and they're still making their way through the courts. The second one does fall back um, into our discussion about vaccines. And we've seen a lot of these cropping up and it is workers directly challenging vaccine mandates adopted by their employers. So I kind of wanted to break down like what that looks like. Yeah. Well, what do they look like? I mean, I know that there's um, various employers rolled out these mandates with varying levels of severity. And there was often, uh, you know, some, some some wiggle room or they would allow for certain exceptions and things like that. But what did the what did the contours of these legal challenges um, exactly look like? Yeah. And I think it's really great the way you set that up, Alex, that there were a variety of mandates in terms of how far they went, what they like you said, what exceptions they allowed. Um, and that is why this litigation is not cookie cutter for each workplace. It depends on the facts of the mandate in place. But I thought mm-hmm. one that was a good example here is a suit ongoing against United Airlines. Kind of typifies the types of arguments that have been made in court against these private employer vaccine mandates. So in that case, a group of United employees that includes some captains, some ground crew, kind of a wide array of, of people that work for that company, have alleged that the United uh, mandate failed to reasonably accommodate disabled or religious employees. Mm-hmm. Um, they say they should have found workarounds for those groups of workers who didn't want to take the vaccine. But instead, they were all placed on um, unpaid leave with no benefits if they refused to be vaccinated. So mm-hmm. United says that that's OK, that unpaid leave is an accepted and um, way to have a reasonable accommodation when you have something like this. They should be able to implement this as part of their vaccine policy. The company has said repeatedly that they are taking the virus very seriously and that that's why they've gone so far. I do want to read a quote from United about why they think this is okay. Although plaintiffs deny that they are challenging United's vaccine mandate itself, that's exactly what they are doing. As a practical matter, plaintiffs are asking this court to sit as a super personnel department reviewing the wisdom or fairness of United's business decisions about how best to enhance workplace health and safety. So they're basically making the argument that this should be left up to the employer, that the courts shouldn't weigh in here Mm -hmm. and second guess what they're doing. This case is a really interesting one to follow. Just this week, the Fifth Circuit, um, a panel, declined to block United Airlines from enforcing this vaccine mandate while the employees proceed with an appeal. So definitely, these are the kind of issues that we're going to see litigated into 2022. The other area that was uh, of interest to us and the rest of the sort of legal community was how the legal industry and the legal world itself wrestled with whether and how to mandate vaccines, whether we're talking about courts, talking about law firms. The initial run of this was, of course, last year when there were safety protocols. Those were still in place. Now we had this other layer of like how the legal system will um, adopt these vaccines now that they're fully uh, on the market. How do you want to get into that? Well, it just seems like, you know, we've we've moved phases, right? So in the beginning of this pandemic, it was very confusing to know what to do. So everything got locked down pretty tightly as we moved forward. We're almost in a trickier spot now where there are vaccines, but how much do you mandate them? 
There's other variants we're dealing with. And it's just created sort of this murky, every man for himself kind of feeling out there. And that's true with sports as well. Over the summer, as the Delta variant really kicked up and we saw case numbers skyrocketing because of that variant, courts began to re-implement some of the health restrictions that they'd only recently lifted. Um, Those ranged from, you know, just straight up mask mandates all the way to full vaccine requirements. And it really depended largely on where you were located. And that's true even now in December, that courthouses are in some places operating near normally, almost pre-pandemic conditions. And then in other jurisdictions, they are very locked down. Some are still doing a lot of things remotely. There's social distancing going on. So it remains really uh, almost a court-by-court analysis here. That Mm -hmm. did result in some drama, though. And um, one of those things happened in New York courts in September, The New York state court system, which employs um, over 15,000 people, implemented their own vaccine mandate. On the day it took effect, 333 workers had not complied and um, three of them were judges. And so they were sent home. Um, Mm -hmm. So you can see how vaccine mandates really can ripple through the court system, cause a lot of potential headaches. And what about in law firms? I feel like we and other publications who about the things we write about would come out with a story every other week about some big law firm or another imposing some kind of vaccine mandate for its office as the industry kind of tried to normalize itself a little bit. Let's break that down a bit. Yeah, we saw a real surge in big law mandating vaccines for their workforce. Um, Mm -hmm. Started as a bit of a trickle at the start of the year. And then as Delta got worse over the summer, we saw a lot of firms taking this step to uh, mandate that their workers be vaccinated. Those varied from place to place in terms of, you know, who could get an exemption and what kind of testing regime would be in place for those workers. But generally speaking, we had a lot of large law thinking they were going to step forward past the pandemic by getting their whole workforce vaccinated and having people start trickling back into offices. That Mm -hmm. was, you know, a great plan, except this pandemic feels like it's going to last forever. Um, Yes. We're now wrapping up the year. And all the talk about COVID has moved from Delta to now we're all talking about the Omicron variant. Who knows exactly how that will progress here, you know, a few weeks into ever having heard the Omicron variant existed. We still don't know a ton. Um, (laughs) But we do have some anecdotal signs that are not great. Um, This month, Latham and Watkins, which required its entire staff to be vaccinated, still experienced a number of positive cases following a corporate department office party in New York. So I think that's sort of, it is just anecdotal. We'll see how it plays out on a broader basis. But after that happened, Latham shut down any other indoor in-person gatherings. And I think this kind of back and forth over what we try to reach out and do something normal again, have a small holiday gathering, then we see problems and step back. And I think that dance is going to continue at a lot of firms. Yeah, I mean, you try and then you get hit with that Omicronic and it's just uh, it's no good. It's 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 not great. Also, I didn't want to interrupt you. I think you said large law at one point, which I really want to normalize in the new year uh, (laughs) as an an alternative to big law. Um, Okay, so the other thing which you teased up top that uh, was um, sort of a late development is the federal. We are talking about private employers mandating vaccines for their own workplaces. The federal government eventually issued a mandate of its own. And to the surprise of no one, we've already done several episodes of, of regular pro se about this. 
uh, that uh, caused some legal blowback. What did that look like? Yeah, I mean, other than the vaccines being developed and uh, disseminated to the masses, uh, this was the biggest vaccine development. Um, yeah, that President Joe Biden issued a set of vaccine mandates starting in September um, that they would potentially have covered millions of people in the United States. The mandates would have made the vaccine mandatory for federal workers and contractors, companies with more than 100 employees, and also facilities that receive Medicare or Medicaid funding. So you can see how mm-hmm. that would cover a huge amount of the U.S. workforce. Uh, those didn't uh, stay in place, though, as you alluded to. This is a lawsuit bonanza. It actually took, yes. until, it took until November for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to release the full emergency rule that fleshes out Biden's directive that all medium and large employers have to uh, require that their workers be fully inoculated or that they get tested every week. As soon as that rule came out, it did answer a lot of questions employers had about exactly how this would operate and function, but it was derided by a bunch of people, lots of Republicans, some companies, some religious groups, and legal challenges from those entities all started rolling in the very same day the rule was officially released in November. Okay, so the mandate gets rolled out, the lawsuits come quickly in its wake. Uh, What is the status of? What do we know about the status of the va- of the federal vaccine mandates now? Pretty messy. So I was happy to like gather this all into one spot um, so that our listeners kind of know where we landed with this because there have been so yes. many suits. It's been hard to keep track. So this is not just I- content. It's educational for us as well. <laughs> so it helps us keep our bearings going into the new year. Yes, yeah. So after just a day on the books, that OSHA rule was temporarily frozen by the Fifth Circuit. They yes, cited... Okay. Um, quote, grave statutory and constitutional issues with the regulation. So that halted things. But Mm -hmm. now we're actually at the Sixth Circuit with the bulk of these challenges because that jurisdiction was chosen to preside over multi-district litigation related to the vaccine mandate. And that consolidates uh, around 34 petitions for review of the rule. So we took a big chunk of things and put it in an MDL, and that now sits with the Sixth Circuit. Um, the rule itself is call- a type called an emergency temporary standard. That's a kind of regulation OSHA is authorized to issue that takes effect immediately when it addresses a grave danger to workers. So some of what we're going to see in this litigation will turn on whether or not this stage of the pandemic is the kind of grave danger that OSHA should be allowed to address in this broad and sweeping manner. I uh, I don't want to step on the end of the show, but of course, this calls to mind the uh, pivotal testimony in A Few Good Men. Is there it, was he in danger, grave danger? Sure. Is there another kind? Uh, uh, I don't mean to make light of this, of course. Um, there's obviously a tremendous amount of um, uh, th- there's a tre- tremendous amount at stake here. Um, and this MDL, I'm sure, will take some time to sort itself out. Is there a sense, though, about the end game here, we know that the MDL is situated in the Sixth Circuit. They're wrestling with, uh, you know, the threshold of whether OSHA was authorized to issue this type of rule. Do we have a sense of where it's going, though? Is it does it seem bound for the for Supreme Court review here? I mean, not to constantly say everything's going to make it to the Supreme Court, but <laughs> in this yeah. instance, it does seem like it has a really fair shot to get there. Um, mm-hmm. Here's part of the reason why. Not only do we have this MDL going on, this is Sixth Circuit is handling with the federal mandate. 
In early December, New York City issued a vaccine mandate that will require private employers to ensure that all their workers are vaccinated against COVID-19. No exceptions. It's pretty Mm -hmm. hardcore. Um, New York City, as everyone probably remembers, was one of the epicenters of the early waves of the pandemic. And I think the rationale from city leaders and Mayor de Blasio is to really get ahead of a potential Omicron surge. So what we could see play out on the basis of New York having taken that step is that the Sixth Circuit in the MDL could reach one result about what's allowed in these types of mandates. And the New York City mandate, uh, as challenges follow that, could end up at the Second Circuit. And the Sixth and Second Circuits are ideologically very different. The Second Circuit could presumably go a different way. You could easily imagine a circuit split that would require high court intervention to sort it all out. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't like to predict what would happen at the Supreme Court because that makes yeah, a fool of everyone. Yeah, we're, 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 we're like estimating the contours of a circuit <laughs> split that doesn't even exist right. yet and then how they might do it. But I mean, is there is there some sense here? But there is a, there's, there are light signs that I would just point out for people to sort okay. of chew on while we wait to see what happens. And one of them is from just this week. The Supreme Court voted six to three without explanation. This is part of the um, so-called shadow docket. Not right. to block New York State's vaccine requirement for healthcare workers. So that was a ruling that had come out of the Second Circuit. They um, let that stand. So does at least give you a sense of in that one instance what they decided? Would it be different if they were viewing the broader federal mandate? Perhaps. But something we'll definitely be watching as we move into next year. All right. As we continue to kind of put a button on the year that was in legal news in 2021, I wanted to highlight um, a couple of trials um, that really grabbed a lot of headlines um, across all different uh, corners of the legal community. We obviously cover trials a lot here, and there was um, a lot of like a lot of high profile litigation that, you know, veered into a lot of the conventional white collar areas that we cover a lot at Law 360 and some really urgently important criminal proceedings um, stemming from the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and the protests from last year. And I thought it would be good to just kind of take a take a long view uh, and kind of reset on what the year looked like in uh, in some of these big trials. Alex, I'm so glad you're doing a, a- discussion of the trials here, because in preparing for this show, it felt like I was looking at enough material for four years, not just one year. We had a lot of really big stuff that really had gripped a lot of people outside of just the legal community and in watching a lot Mm -hmm. of these trials unfold. So I think it'll be good to run through the big ones. Yes. And if you think that I did the work to see if there were more trials than there were before, you're wrong. I didn't do it. It just... (laughs) It just felt like it, and we're going to talk about some of the big ones. So, um, anyway, that's the kind of rigor you get here uh, at the end at, at, at the end of the year on Pro Se. So, we wanted to start with something that's a real hobby horse for Pro Se. If you've been listening to the show, you know we cover this case a lot. It's Varsity Blues. Um, I like to think of if Pro Se is Batman, Varsity Blues is kind of like our Joker. I think we're kind of 
destined to do this dance uh, with the Varsity Blues case forever. <laughs> I think most people know that, of course, we're talking about the college admissions scandal. And um, after uh, many years of people being charged and mostly pleading out, we did get a case that wound its way to trial this fall. Well, let's talk about why that's a big deal. I mean, I know you said most things settled. Um, you know, tell me why this one didn't and 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 what it sort of meant for the the bigger case here. Yeah, the big the the biggest news story of this trial is that it happened at all. Most of these parents that we're talking about are um who were who were charged in this case um are what I would what I would categorize as like financially comfortable, if not like super duper wealthy or rich. Um, there's some variation there, but they were, you know, ac accused of conspiring to get their kids into college under some fraudulent con conditions, whether it's, um, you know, paying proctors to to to, um, you know, fix the admissions exams or pretending that their kids were members of athletics teams and they really weren't to get scholarships. But by and large, most of these cases had settled. But in the fall, a, a hedge fund manager named John Wilson and a former casino executive named Gamal Abdelaziz sort of fought their charges all the way to trial, only to have a Boston federal jury convict them on conspiracy and tax fraud charges for, again, they had basically paid bribes or facilitated bribes to get their children's spots at top colleges um, with these like phony athletic credentials. Yeah, I mean, we've talked many, many times about like faked crew pictures and that kind of yes. stuff that was going on here. Um, so what does this mean for the other outstanding Varsity Blues cases? Because, you know, you've made it really clear that this was a big deal because it made it to trial at all. Were there like lessons learned from that? Yeah, it was a fairly open and shut case. I mean, the trial was short, the deliberations were short, and these guys got rung up on these fraud charges. But I think the it, it, it's it's a little soon to say exactly how it's going to affect it. But there are a number of cases that are still set to go to trial next year. And there's uh, this is including a case against a the former head water polo coach at USC that is supposed to happen in March. Now, the in this in this trial I just talked about in Boston, the government was able to get a conviction of these of these two guys, Wilson and Abdelaziz, without actually having to call the Varsity Blues ringleader, a guy named William Rick Singer. They didn't have to call him to the stand. They just relied. He was a cooperating witness, and they were able to rely on his wiretapped conversations with the parents. And that was extremely incriminating. And uh, like I say, it, it didn't take much to get a conviction there. Um, there is a sense among people. Our own Chris Filani has done a lot of great reporting on this, um, and he's been on the show talking about this case. There is a sense that prosecutors might be reluctant to actually put Singer on the stand as he has sort of is an admitted fraudster and liar, and they don't really want to maybe open him up to cross-examination where you could poke some holes in what he says. So they obviously prefer to rely on this very convincing and very voluminous um, uh, uh, evidence in the wiretaps. So um, there have been a lot of pretrial fights in this case uh, with the USC water polo coach about whether and how um, he can be put on the stand. Um, so that is sort of the immediate sort of thing to watch as uh, more of these cases go forward. I'd like us to also stay in the world of, of criminal cases, which is not always our sweet spot for um, pro se, but boy, did we have some big ones this year. Let's talk about Elizabeth Holmes. 
Yes. So at the top of the show, when I was kidding about, uh, you know, kind of just phoning in the rest of our work, uh, I do want to say that as we record today on December 14th, the trial of, of Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes, which began on August 31st, jury selection began that day. It's still going on. Our own Dorothy Atkins um, has been in court out in California for Oh, gosh, I don't know. What is that? Three months now? Um, I'm sure for her, it feels like a lifetime. She's done some really great reporting for us. Yes. So we will catch you up on what we know so far. Um, Closing arguments are supposed to begin uh, this week. And the just based on what's gone on in this trial so far and how long it's sort of played out, the question is um, sort of whether Holmes defrauded these customers and investors in her company with promises um, of this breakthrough blood testing method. Um, it's been pretty protracted. Uh, I think I think that much we can say, even without a verdict yet at our hand. Well, let's get really into what's happened so far in the case. I mean, mm-hmm. what exactly um, are they alleging against her and what's the defense been so far? Yeah, so I think most people know that Holmes started this company, Theranos, and claimed to be able to conduct a whole broad range of blood tests for everything, you know, for uh, from cancer and other things based on just a simple pinprick, a single droplet of blood rather than drawing a vial of blood. But the question that that the jury is is wrestling with here and what prosecutors are and what um, uh, prosecutors are trying to prove is that, you know, was this um, a case of just some excessive Silicon Valley ambition or was it? outright fraud? You know, was it wanton, like lying about the capabilities of this company? Um, And over the last three months, when this uh, this case has been underway, um, various investors, patients, and former Theranos employees have taken the stand um, about their interactions with the company. There's been a ton of interesting testimony, which I will only sort of briefly try and run down here. And the most interesting testimony actually came from Holmes herself, um, who took the stand and basically said that her relationship with uh, another Theranos executive named Ramesh Sunny Balwani, they they had entered into this romantic relationship and it basically devolved into this 10-year nightmare where he was very controlling. She's alleged sexual abuse um, and that Balwani's conduct basically hindered her from making rational decisions with the company. Um the uh, lawyers on the other side, of course, have flagged um, a lot of text uh, logged test text messages between the two uh, that they send to each other that are very uh, that that don't seem to be to paint a picture of an abusive relationship. They are um, just sort of talking very candidly and very lovingly often as Theranos sort of rapidly draws millions of dollars into the startup on very flimsy pretenses. I mean, I can see why there's a lot of people out there that are following every written article about this trial because it's so fascinating. It it involves, you know, big tech innovation and also just mm-hmm. the personal lives of two executives. So there's a lot to yeah. follow here. But is there anything we can take away at this stage? I know we're not at the end of the trial yet, so maybe not. Right. But, but where do we stand? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't as as we sit here today, we don't actually have a verdict yet. So it is tough to uh, render some lessons. I mean, I guess if as you listen to this now, the thing to really just take away is that this was sort of a 
a really uniquely um, crazy story that has, I don't think we should be surprised, um, had this, has had, now had this extremely protracted and fascinating trial. I think if you're really trying to key into like what to watch out for as the jury, deli- as the closings begin and then the jury deliberates, is to see sort of whether this like Silicon Valley ambition defense holds the day or if it's this more personalized sort of Svengali defense situation about the Holmes uh, Balwani relationship, um, I suppose, you know, either or both could contribute to a verdict um, in either direction. But a um, uh, lot of interesting factors at play in this one. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to see how it turns out. So much the same way we talked about how the story of the COVID pandemic spanned from 2020 into 2021 and stayed a top story. Similar um, grouping of cases I want to talk about with you now, and that's around the Black Lives Matter movement. We saw that really take root in America in full force in 2020, but a lot of the litigation around it has actually hit in 2021. Yes, there was quite a long tail of the legal fallout from the Black Lives Matter protests that um, sort of really picked up in earnest in the middle of 2020. Um, And I think that the most notable of these, as I think anyone who was paying attention to the news this year would agree, was the trial of Derek Chauvin, who is the former uh, Minneapolis police officer who kneeled on the neck of George Floyd until he died. Um, And he was found guilty of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter um, for killing Floyd. And he was sentenced to just over 22 years in prison. Um, That is just sort of factually what happened. I don't think we need to really over-explain the significance of this. Floyd's murder essentially ignited the entire 2020 protest movement. There were other incidents as well, some of which we'll talk about now. Um, And this kind of definitively closed the loop on the legal question. It was also obviously significant because it is is exceedingly rare for police officers to stand trial for killings on duty, let alone be convicted of them. And this was um, a special set of circumstances. This entire encounter was captured on video um, on, a, on a cell phone video. Uh, if that hadn't happened, we don't know how this would have panned out. Um, but that was, I think, pretty far and away the most notable sort of um, Black Lives Matter related trial um, uh, outcome that we saw this year. Yeah, I would. I think um, definitely this is going to be one where, you know, for years to come, people remember where they were when they heard the verdict announced. And, and it was really just kept the nation captivated to see where we would land there. But Mm -hmm. that's not the only Black Lives Matter related case that happened this year. So why don't we run down a couple of other developments um, that that maybe didn't get quite the same amount of attention, but were really important nonetheless. Yeah, the other one I wanted to shout out here was the um, convictions that came in for the killing of uh, Ahmaud Arbery, who was a uh, 25-year-old man in Georgia who was killed um, by uh, a, a white man while he was out jogging unarmed. Um, this was kind of another flashpoint for the Black Lives Matter protests. We went to the went to trial this year, and a jury in Georgia found that the three men who cornered uh, Arbery they he, they found them guilty on various charges related to his murder, including a conviction of uh, on on a malice murder charge for the man who actually shot him. Actually pulled the trigger. His name was Travis McMichael. Um, His father, Gregory McMichael, and their neighbor, William Roddy Ryan, were also convicted on counts of felony murder, aggravated assault, and false imprisonment. Uh, 
uh, and also criminal attempt to commit a felony. They had all sort of cornered him in a truck and then he was shot dead um, shortly after that. Uh, Arbery was unarmed. um, And even though he was not armed, the defendants in the case relied on basically a slavery reconstruction era self-defense citizens arrest law to justify their killing. This was a very old law on the books in Georgia that basically allowed, gave expansive authority for citizens to make arrests if they perceived some danger. Now, not only did that not work, they were convicted here, but actually this happened even um, before the trial this year, after the, after the, the, the murder became public. The Georgia legislature actually repealed that law shortly after he was killed. So the legal fallout came uh, very fast and, and, uh, and, and decisively uh, in the wake of this incident. Uh, a few other developments I wanted to run down here. Uh, if, you, uh, if you were living under a rock, you may not have heard about the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse, who shot three men and killed two of them during a 2020 Black Lives Matter protest in Wisconsin following the police shooting of Jacob Blake, uh, who was a black man. I say this just because obviously this got a lot of traction in the sort of racial justice news cycle um, because of the the venue that this was a Black Lives Matter protest. Um, but it, we should obviously, as I think most people know, Rittenhouse is white and the three men he shot were also white. But the connections here were pretty clear. Rittenhouse prevailed in Wisconsin on a self-defense claim, which kind of seemed to be aided by the fact that this happened within the context of a protest where other people had firearms and he was able to, at least in the eyes of this jury, credibly claim that he had feared for his life in this sort of quickly moving and chaotic situation. Um, There was a ton of attention on this case, uh, as I'm sure everyone is aware. just because of the fact pattern of one person shooting three other people in the middle of a very crowded street, much of it captured um, on camera. And, um, you know, I think it kind of speaks to the very expansive nature of both gun laws and self-defense laws, which ultimately turn the tide uh, in this case. Yeah, that one definitely um, was very interesting to see play out. The laws themselves, I think many people didn't realize exactly what they could or could not cover, um, especially mm-hmm. if you lived in other places in the U.S. So it definitely yeah. raised a lot of questions, a lot of people talking about that. Um, but you you sort of oriented us there to say that this that happened at a protest. And I think we had mm-hmm. some other things that are worth mentioning here to wrap out 2021 that were also just related to protests generally and some of the legal fallout that happened for people that participated and people who who potentially went too far. Yeah, and this was something that um, has gotten a lot of traction in the legal press. Not a lot of mainstream attention. It's obviously interesting, but we have uh, discussed before the um, case of these two attorneys who uh, in October entered guilty pleas for throwing Molotov cocktails in New York City during the night uh, during the night of um, rioting and protests in the middle of 2020, including throwing one uh, such uh, incendiary device into an abandoned uh, police vehicle. The attorneys are Collinford Mattis and Aruj Rockman. Mattis worked at the firm Prior Cashman. Rockman was a Bronx legal services worker. They pled guilty to making or possessing a destructive device. In again, they did that in October. 
Prosecutors at that time are actually looking to beef up their charge with a domestic terrorism enhancement. They're treating it as a terrorism charge, which could get them up to 10 years in prison, which is something that a lot of the legal community has been there. There has been a lot of uh, support around them, not necessarily for what they did, but that the case um, is somewhat a little trumped up. Um, on the other side, of course, there are people who will tell you that, you know, attorneys are, you know, they had to sort of uphold themselves to a certain standard. Um, and it's really gotten uh, a lot of traction in legal news circles. Again, those pleas were entered in October, and we uh, uh, will sort of uh, await the sentencing there. Um, but uh, that's certainly not an exhaustive list. There was um, lots of interesting trials uh, afoot in 2021. But I think that gives you a good sense of uh, what was really driving the news this past year. It's been fun looking back on 2021 with you and all the legal developments, but I just wanted to leave it with, you know, do we have any last things we want to talk about? Anything that we covered on Pro Save this year that we feel like um, were our favorites? Yeah, um, I wanted to. Well, we should say um, I, I know the people are probably clamoring. They wonder they're wondering. People are coming up to me on the street. From a respectful distance and masks saying, where are where are the best of my offbeat segment? Uh, and that is coming next week, folks. So stay tuned to the feed for that. But um, yeah, it's like our of, holiday gift to the listeners. The, yeah, the show with yeah. the fun stuff in it. That will make for good holiday listening. Another thing that makes for good holiday listening. We're never above self-promotion here. Um, I just wanted to give another shout out to the Pro Se Movie Club, which we did this year. And I was quite uh, I was quite taken by. Um, we 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 sort of put a bow on that a few months ago. But if there was ever a time to to give it another plug, I think this is uh, proper. What do you say, Amber? So glad you brought it up because it's the highlight of my entire career to date. Um, wow! Really, my favorite thing we've ever done, and they're entirely evergreen. So if somebody missed it because they were busy um, earlier in the year, it's a great time to catch up because you can listen to those anytime. You can pick one of the movies, maybe do a little rewatch, then do a little listen to the Pro Se episode to be a good holiday activity. Yes. And before we get out of here uh, on the topic of the Pro Se Movie Club, we don't we don't quite have time, nor did it really occur to us to do uh, an entire episode. But I had a, a friend of mine who listens to the show suggested that we should at least nod to the gripping um, holiday legal drama Miracle on 34th Street, which I haven't seen, I don't think, since I was a kid. And I frankly forgot that it has like an entire courtroom. It, 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 like the whole third act. I mean, it concludes like with a, with a dramatic, uh, uh, court sequence. I really think we might have a, a seasonal spinoff here because when you yeah. mentioned that, I thought to myself, there's a surprising number of legal moments in holiday movies. Um, the Santa Claus, the one with an E on it, is basically a contract-based movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't um, even think of that. There's, there's plenty true. of these. I really think we could have a little run of holiday movies where we talk about it. But did anything stand out when you were thinking about Miracle on 34th Street? Because I, too, have not watched that in some time. Well, I think most people know the story. But if you've forgotten, it does end 
with, I'm, I guess I'm not sure if it's a federal or a state judge, but it's a judge who declares that a man actually is Santa. And the basis of this claim is because the post office gets letters to Santa and uh, through some like kind of backroom skullduggery, some employment or some some employee at the post office says, hey, we should deliver these letters to this guy, Chris Kringle. And then be therefore, because a federal government agency considers him to be Santa Claus, the court is bound to basically say, yes, this man is the one and only Santa Claus. That holds um, up. I have no notes. Which honestly, you know, I thought this is, you know, tell you friends, tell your talk to your doctor about legal reporter brain, because that's what <laughs> I've got, because this is a fantastic bit of like, you know, a judge examining, you know, being big deferential to a federal decision. Right. Oh, sure. It's it's not a law he's interpreting. It's just a decision by the post office to deliver a letter. I don't know what the standard is for that sort of in. Uh, relevant uh, uh, holiday jurisprudence. But in the eyes of this judge, I mean, that's enough. He's like literally, you know, they like pile the they pile the letters on his desk and he goes through it and he's like, hey, good enough for me. Uh, we I would are love giving... to know what happened on appeal. I don't know. The movie just ends there. Uh, but I feel yeah. like what we've laid out here, uh, what you've presented is a great idea for somebody's like um, law review note that they could write mm. a full treatise on exactly how the the legal deference worked in Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah, um, that's a free idea. I mean, if it hasn't been done already, uh, if there are any ambitious law students, I'm sure you're I'm sure you're on the way home and not wanting to do work. But <laughs> if you do it and you tell us about it, we will definitely say something about it on the podcast. <laughs> that is that is my promise to you. That is um, the homework we're giving you all. Um, no, but... it's not homework. It is a mere <laughs> suggestion uh, at, you know, fleeting legal podcast notoriety. So there's an incentive for you. <laughs> well, thank you for bringing that one, Alex. What a great way to end our look back at 2021. It uh, it was a pleasure, Amber. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, looking forward to uh, to another year. We also want to thank a bunch of other people that helped make Pro Se happen, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our entire newsroom, without them, we would not have content for the show. So thanks for all your hard work this year. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform that helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we talked about today, including a lot of look backs at the biggest things that have gone on in 2021. And um, as we step into the new year, we'll have a lot of look forwards about what to put on your radar. So check us out at law360.com slash podcast. See you next week for that best of offbeat show and happy holidays.